Today's reading is from Matthew 27, 37 through 54. They placed above his head the charge against him. It read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. They crucified him, two outlaws, one on his right and one on his left. Those who were walking by insulted Jesus, shaking their heads and saying, So you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild in three days, were you? Save yourself. If you're God's son, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests, along with the legal experts and the elders, were making fun of him, saying, He saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel, so let him come down from the cross now. Then we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. So let God deliver him now if he wants to. He said, I'm God's son. The outlaws who were crucified with him insulted him in the same way. From noon until three in the afternoon, the whole earth was dark. At about three, Jesus cried out with a loud shout, Eli! Eli lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you left me? After hearing him, some standing there said, he's calling Elijah. One of them ran over, took a sponge full of vinegar, and put it on a pole. He offered it to Jesus to drink. But the rest of them said, let's see if Elijah will come and save him. Again, Jesus cried out with a loud shout, and he died. Look. The curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from the top to the bottom. The earth shook. The rocks split. And the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised. After Jesus' resurrection, they came out of their graves and they went into the holy city where they appeared to many people. When the centurion and those who were guarding Jesus saw that earthquake and what had just happened, they were filled with awe and they said, this was certainly God's son. This is the word of the Lord. Kids, you are dismissed to King's Quest while the rest of us are seated. Thank you, Shannon, for that reading. Sometimes after the reading of Scripture, everything else just seems superfluous, Uh, and that's what it feels like, so thank you. But I think God has something he wants to say to us, so would you pray with me and that we would be open to God's word to us? 
Lord God, thank you for thank you for coming to us in Jesus. Thank you for holding nothing back and forgiving your entire self so that we might experience life. Thank you for your word that we can read, that we can remember, that we can be shaped by the story of you and your death, which means life and your resurrection and the hope that that gives to us. God, I pray that you would speak through the different distractions that we might have, that I might have, that you would, that you would pierce our hearts with the truth of your love, of your faithfulness. I pray for those who have not tasted or seen your goodness that they would this morning. For those of us who have, but who forget how good it tastes and how wonderful it is to see that you might, you might make it come alive again. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're in a series on the Apostles' Creed, and we've entered into the second article, which the first article talking about God the Father Almighty, the second article really focusing on the person of Jesus. And just by way of introduction, in case you're entering into the series or you haven't been here um, for a time, the, the Apostles' Creed was used in the early church as a way of educating new believers who were going to be getting baptized and converting into the way of Jesus, into Christianity. And they would go through this teaching that would focus on these three articles about God, the Father, and the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. And after about 40 or so days of that teaching and education, then they would come upon a time to be baptized, and then they would be asked these questions. Do you believe in God the Father Almighty? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? And they would be submerged underwater three times and brought up as a way of signifying that their life is now incorporated, connected to, tethered to the life of Jesus. Uh, and, and we've been talking about the Apostles' Creed as a way of actually helping us gain a footing in the landscape of faith, that here are the different things that, that, it, that we as Christians together, um, the different language that we use, the different beliefs that we share together, um, and that it's really, it acts as a map, um, as a lens, as a light, and also as a tapestry. Um, and it does these things by way of entering, helping us enter into life with God and to discover that our faith has a story um, and also to develop and cultivate a posture of discovery in this landscape of faith. But last week we entered into talking about Jesus. And I suggested last week that, that this part in the creed and what it's bringing up in terms of who it's identifying Jesus to be as Christ, as God's Son, and as Lord, it's doing three things. And I think that there's a slide for this. That it's really showing us, showing people of faith, that the story of Israel is continued and fulfilled in Jesus. That there was something that God has been up to this whole time, and that it's connected to the person of Jesus. And we also see in Jesus that God's character is revealed. And we also see 
here in this section in the creed, the grace and the mystery of our participation. And I suggested last week that the virgin birth, that Mary as a character in the, in the creed specifically and in the scripture as a whole, actually becomes a person who embodies the yes to what God is doing in Jesus, who God has revealed himself to be as Christ, as Son, and as Lord. That Mary whose life is interrupted by God, says, yes, I am your servant. And I also suggested that there is a no that we can also have in response to Jesus as embodied in the person of Pontius Pilate. So here in the creed, we have this revelation of who Jesus is, and then we have these two responses. Mary, the yes to who Jesus is. Pontius Pilate, the no to who Jesus has revealed himself to be. And so I want to talk briefly about Pontius Pilate as a character in the story, but also as a historical figure, because I think it's really fascinating that here in the Creed, we come upon three names, three names that can be located in history, that the way that God works out his ways is through flesh and blood history, that somehow our participation as people and as God's creation is involved in what God is doing. That though God seems to keep the, the story moving, as, again, as we see in the virgin birth, there is still opportunity for us, for people, for history and our involvement. And that they are woven together. And that God has created a world, a mysterious world, in which these things coincide. And it's complex and it's tricky, but it's what we have. And I think it's remarkable because, again, we're invited into the story. But Pontius Pilate is a Roman governor who's been given the rule or the charge to, to, to be over this area of Roman rule and occupation. And so he has this job that is to be a stand-in for Caesar as Lord and to be sure that things are as they should be in this kingdom, in this place. But all of a sudden, there's this person, Jesus, who's creating a ruckus. The Jewish authorities, they don't know what to do with Jesus. He is claiming to be the Messiah, the person through whom God is going to do his work. But that can't be true. He's also claiming to be God's son, like he's one with God. This is blasphemy. They don't know what to do with Jesus. The Roman occupation, the governors, they don't know what to do with Jesus because he's claiming to be king of kings and lord of lords. But wait, only Caesar is lord. So Jesus comes onto the scene and here we have this figure, Pontius Pilate. Jesus is brought before, charged against him to be, to be a, a blasphemer, but also to be somebody who is going to be creating this rebellion against Caesar himself. So he needs to be done away with. But he comes before Pontius Pilate, and it's almost as if Pontius Pilate isn't sure what to do with Jesus. He can see that this person of Jesus seems like he's done no wrong, so why is he going to be crucified? But also, a whole lot of people want his life to be over, and he can tell that there's going to be some sort of thing that has started if he doesn't do what the people seem to want to do, or if he doesn't do what Caesar wants him to do. That all of a sudden, right here in the person of Jesus, and as we talk about Jesus' crucifixion, there's some political, political problem that's going on. It's not just simply a religious or spiritual thing, though it is because they're, again, all connected. But this is something which Pilate doesn't know what to do with. 
Frederick Beekner, who's a very imaginative writer, actually imagines Pontius Pilate to be something like a bureaucrat of today who smokes two packs a day. And he's just simply placed in this position where he, he doesn't even know what to do. He just simply has to go at the whims of the people or of the authorities of which he is serving under, as if to say he has no moral virtue or character out of which to act. He is simply what seems like a pawn without any sort of moral center. Now, why I bring this up in terms of Pontius Pilate, because if Mary is a figure who is the yes to Jesus and to what God is doing in Jesus, and Pontius Pilate is the no, what it's so easy to do is to distance ourselves from Pilate. As we get to this point in the creed, we see everything has been going the way it should be. When we talk about God, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ, everything is good. And then it's almost like the brakes screech. And the world isn't as good as it has seemed to be up to this point in the creed. And for good reason. Because we see in the suffering and in the death of Jesus and in Pilate as somebody who is complicit in that act, that the world somehow is in opposition to the ways of God and what he wants. And it's so tempting for me to distance myself from these figures who want nothing to do with God or to reject Jesus and to put him to death. But the creed doesn't let us do that. The creed reminds us that Pilate is somebody who, when face-to-face with Jesus, rejects and despises. When the people whom God has come to save are face-to-face with the God who has come in Jesus, they reject and they put to death. As much as I would like to distance myself from this, the creed says no. We are always, all the time, able to be a Mary in the story or a Pilate in the story. And the world is not as it should be because the world rejects the ways of God. If we go back to Genesis 1, we see this. God created a world in which the way things were supposed to work. He created man and woman. And we see that they wanted to do their things their own way. They didn't want a God over them. They wanted to be God themselves. So what that creates is a distortion. The biblical word for this is sin. Things operating in contrast to the way that God wants them. And this is inside of us. This is what, this is what we, is part of us. One writer calls this the human propensity to mess things up, though he doesn't use the word mess. That somehow we have this within us, this propensity to mess things up. And it's hard to know why, and it's even hard to understand why, but it's there. And it works in contrast and often in rejection of the ways of God. And Pilate in the Creed reminds us that not only are we sometimes Mary saying yes to God's ways, we are sometimes saying no to God's ways. But I want to talk about the cross. I want to talk about the way in which God reveals himself in Jesus and who he reveals himself to be specifically in the crucifixion, in the suffering, in the dying, and in the being buried. Now, for Christians, this is 
This is Christianity. This is where it begins. On the cross with Jesus. And there is something about the cross that is hard to understand or even hard to put your finger on. There is something about the story of Jesus, and Shannon so beautifully modeled this, that when you read it, you can't help but be overcome by it, even if you can't articulate why. The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 2. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not proclaiming, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is it. Certainly crucifixion leads to resurrection. So, so Jesus is the one who is crucified and Jesus is the one who is raised. This is our story of why it is we are here and why we have been brought together. One pastor puts it this way, Fleming Rutledge, the world's religions have certain traits in common, but until the gospel of Jesus Christ burst upon the Mediterranean world, no one in the history of human imagination had conceived of such a thing as the worship of a crucified man. I mean, think about that. We as Christians worship a Christ, a son, a Lord who was crucified, who was put to death under Roman occupation. And somehow it's it connected to our stories and what's going on. And yet, what is going on with the cross? There is a power in the cross that is there, that when you hear it, even if you haven't given your life to it or decided that your life is to be identified with the cross, there's something really beautiful and compelling about it. There's a story of a priest, um, a French priest, who, who, in a homily, was telling the story of young boys. They were these young boys who wanted to really get at this other priest. And so they thought, hey, wouldn't it be funny if we went into the confessional and we just started confessing for all these crazy, weird things? Uh, and, which is, I guess, seems fun. I don't know. I, I can imagine how that would be funny. But so, they, so there's this one kid, this one boy named Aaron, who is actually a Jewish boy. He's like, I'll be the one. I'll do it. So he goes into the confessional with the priest, and he starts confessing for all of these crazy, bizarre sins just, just to see what the priest would do. So the, but the priest, being wise and older, and probably this is not the first time it's happened, recognizing, recognized what was going on. And so he absorbed it and he said, okay, here's what I want you to do. Here's your penance. I want you to go up to the front, to where the crucifixion is, and I want you to say before the Christ who is on the cross, to say this, and I quote, I know you died for me, but I don't give a damn. And I want you to say that three times. And so this, this boy named Aaron thought, well, this would be great. This is going to be, this is so easy. I can do this. So he goes up to the front of the church before Jesus, there on the cross. And he says the first time, I know you died for me, but I don't give a damn. He says the second time, I know you died for me, but I don't give a damn. Then he goes the third time to try and say it, and he says, I know you died for me, but... And he can't finish. He's just overcome with emotion. And he walks out of the church. And the priest says, the only way I know that story is because I was that boy. 
that there is something about Jesus Christ crucified that is powerful and has meaning and has changed the world even if we don't know what exactly is going on. But the question remains, what is going on with the cross? Why is this something that's significant to the identity of what it means to be somebody who follows after Jesus? In baptism, you are put to death with Jesus and then raised again in life, that our life is wrapped up in Christ's death and resurrection. Why does that matter? Well, the scripture tries to get at what's going on with the cross in a few different ways. And theologians for history have been trying to come up with language or models or even theories to describe how it works. Because a lot of the language is Jesus dying for our sins or God putting, putting or condemning sin in the person of Jesus. Some of it talks about like ransom or Jesus being in our place on the cross. What exactly is going on? In the cross. 1 Corinthians 15 says this For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15 says this In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. Who raised him from the dead, and you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Hebrews 2.9 says this, but we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In Mark 10, Jesus says this to his disciples, that, that he did not come to, serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So there's these, this crazy language about Jesus' crucifixion somehow being connected to our sin, being connected to our death, that what God was doing with Jesus on the cross was connected to all of that. And so what exactly is taking place? And again, there are many different types of theories. There's like the ransom theory. There's the moral theory that what Jesus did is just something we're to behold because that is to give us uh, some moral center for how we live our lives. There's penal substitutionary atonement theory, which is that Jesus took our place in order to satisfy the wrath of God in some way. There are these, there's so many different theories of what God was doing in Jesus on the cross. And then to create a theory, which I think you would agree, is actually to somehow systematize or make simple that which is mysterious and complex. Now, I think every theory that is posed, not every, a lot of the different theories that are posed have scriptural backing and basis for what God is doing in Jesus. But it's like this beautiful diamond that to say this is what is happening, I think is to disregard or miss something else. So there's, there, there are a few different ways through which we try to talk about the cross. And here's a, a helpful 
a helpful way, I think, of, of synthesizing some of these, and it comes from a person named Scott McKnight. And he says this. He uses the words identification for incorporation. So in Christ, God identifies with us in order to make us what God wants us to be. In Christ, God identifies with us in order to make us what God wants to be. So it's connected to our sin and to the ways in which we are, we are in rejection to God. It's also connected to our death. It's also connected to the way that we're imprisoned, to, the, to, to ourselves, to our old selves, as the Bible talks about it, that the cross is wrapped up in all of that. And on the cross, what God is doing is identifying with us, his people, his creation, in order to make it possible for us to be what he's wanting us to be. He's dealing with sin. He's dealing with death. He's dealing with the brokenness. He's dealing with wrath. He's, he's dealing with, with the ways in which we are complicit and guilty. God, in Jesus, is doing something cosmic and significant, not just for me, not for you, not for us as individuals, but for the entire world. What God is doing on the cross means everything, and it changes everything. And it's something to be considered, to wonder at, and to think about, because it is our life together as Christians. On the cross, what you see and it's the verse we all grow up in church memorizing, John 3, 16. We see the very embodiment and the definition of what it means that God loves us. On the cross, we see the embodiment and the very definition of what it means that God loves us. Now, I want you to listen to, this per to a person who, who has wrestled with the cross and what it has meant for him. And I think he puts it in words that are extremely beautiful. And I want us all to hear these words, but I especially want you, who are in some ways at a distance to the cross, or maybe it's lost, lost its beauty and its wonder, or maybe you're not even sure why it exists as part of what it means to be Christian, because there's something really beautiful about the words that this person uses. I'm just going to read it, and I want you to listen. Jesus is the love that makes the world to whom all times and places are equally present. He isn't just feeling the anger and spite and unbearable self-disgust of this one crowd on this one Friday morning in Palestine. He's turning his bruised face toward the whole human crowd, past and present to come, and accepting everything we have to throw at him, everything we fear we deserve ourselves. The doors of his heart are wedged open wide, and in rushes the whole pestilential flood the vile and roiling tide of cruelties and failures and secrets. Let me take that from you, he is saying. Give that to me instead. Let me carry it. Let me be to blame instead. I am big enough. I am wide enough. I am the father who longs for every last one of his children. I am the friend who will never leave you. I am the light behind the darkness. I am the shining your shame cannot extinguish. I am the ghost of love in the torture chamber. I am change and hope. I am the refining fire. I am the door where you thought where there was only wall. I am what comes after deserving. I am the earth that drinks up the bloodstain. 
I am gift without cost. I am, I am, I am. Before the foundations of the world, I am. Jesus on the cross is the God who has come to us to absorb, to take, to do what it is we cannot do, which is to mend that which is broken. In Jesus Christ, in his death, in his suffering, in his burial, God is doing something to mend the world. Now in the reading you heard read this morning, there is a tear. There is a tear in this curtain of the tabernacle, which is this place to say that God's presence and humanity, needs, there needs to be some sort of barrier. But when, when Christ dies, that which separates is no longer there. On the cross of Christ, God makes it possible for heaven and earth to connect, for God's presence in our humanity to be with one another. This is the mystery and the complexity of the cross. Something cosmic has changed. One writer says that it's the day the revolution began. Hearkening back to the Exodus, when finally, after that last plague, Pharaoh says, go, just leave. And so the people of Israel leave Egypt. This is the beginning of that leaving, when Christ dies for the sake of the world. This is the beginning of when death itself dies because of what God has done in Jesus. But here's what's remarkable, that this is also the place where God's glory in Jesus is revealed. I mean, that turns everything on its head. We worship a person who is crucified, that somehow we attest to the glory in which God has revealed himself is that when a man dies on a cross, which under Roman occupation at the time was the most shameful way one could die. It looks like utter and complete failure. So much so that the disciples who are close and with Jesus leave and abandon him because everything they staked their life on up to that point is gone. The revolution they thought would begin in Jesus looks to be an utter failure. But on this side of resurrection, we look at the cross and say that wasn't failure. That was the beginning of when God changed everything, made it possible for you, for me, for us, for the church, all times and places to be reconciled to God, for the world to be reconciled to God in Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 56 is this. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What looks to be utter failure and complete loss is the beginning of something beautiful and profound. And what does that mean, that we worship a God where the cross is a figure of victory? What does that mean for you? What does that mean for me? That the cross becomes a place where we see God's glory revealed. I mean, in the scripture that we heard read this morning, it was when Jesus 
shouted his last possible God-forsaken moment. And when he took his last breath and he died, when a centurion, a Roman centurion says, surely this was the son of God. The God who is worshipped, the God who is maker of heaven and earth, the God who is over all things, the God who is Lord. And this climactic image of death is where God's glory is revealed. Now, as the church, as people who say yes to that, it is a lifetime of learning and figuring out what does it mean to live in response to that? What shape should my life take if I worship a God who came in the form of a man to die? A God who held nothing back and who opened himself up completely for a world in the face of utter vulnerability would reject him. That is the God we worship. And that is good news. Because it's good news because Christ identifies with us in our death and incorporates us then into his life. But it's also a God who identifies with us in our suffering. That God is no stranger to suffering. He is the God who endured the cross in Jesus. He is the God who whose glory is not out to coerce or to manipulate or to oppress, but to give and to give and to give. I read again from Mark 10, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So God identifies with us as his people so that we might be brought into his life and he identifies with us in suffering. It makes me think, I don't know if you've seen the film Silence by Martin Scorsese um, or even read the book, but it's an incredible exploration of what it means to suffer and specifically to suffer as Christians. And it takes place in, in Japan where these Jesuit priests are, are sent to go look for this other priest who seems to have gone off the deep end and, and rejected Jesus. And so they're, he, they're in this place, and, and one of those priests ends up getting captured. And he says this whole time that he just sees these Japanese Christians suffering, and he can't help but hear the deafening silence of God. Where is God in this? Where is Christ in this? And there are these moments throughout this priest's story which when he closes his eyes, he sees the image, the face of Jesus. And often the face, the image says nothing. But there's this one moment toward the end of, of, of his capturing, um, his being imprisoned, where he closes his eyes and he, he sees that image of Jesus again. And this time there are words. And Jesus says this to him, when you suffer, I suffer with you. And to the end, I am close to you. When you suffer, I suffer with you, and to the end, I am close to you. That we have a God who is humble and vulnerable, coming to us in the person of Jesus in order that he would go to the cross in order to die for our sake and for the sake of the world is a God who says, I will suffer with you, and to the end, I am with you. And we can have trust that that is true because we see the cross and know that's where God is.
So what does it mean for the church, for people who identify with this? What does it mean for us to be a people shaped by the cross? Well, on the one hand, it means to be people who don't turn away from suffering, but who are the embodiment of Christ in the midst of suffering. But it's also an opportunity to live lives that make sense only because God himself was crucified in the person of Jesus, that that gives our lives together its very identity, that we as people can be open in utter selfless giving and love to one another and to the world that would be a picture, a signpost, a trailer for the remarkable love and generosity and faithfulness of God. I want to leave you with this from a person named Samuel Wells. When he thinks about the church, when he thinks about the cross, he says, the church is that body of people who declare they want to be in continuity with the story, who in baptism accept that this story is their story, who know themselves to be in exile from God and see Jesus as the one who went into exile for them and who finally brings them home. The church is not a collection of individuals who make their own private arrangements about which theory of salvation they fancy and then join up with a bunch of others who favor the same one. It is those people who believe they are called to be the context of Jesus' story. The church is called to demonstrate that salvation in Christ isn't just a theory. We should seek to embody in our church life such hopefulness, such faithfulness, such patience, such endurance, such forgiveness, such truthfulness that could only be possible if Jesus has saved us. We should be a context that demands an explanation, a living mystery that invites scrutiny. We should be a people coming out of exile, out of the exile of sin, of oppression, of estrangement, of fear, of suffering, of death. We should be a people helping to bring others out of exile, of despair, of loneliness, of regret, of humiliation. We should be a people who speak of the God who made himself known to us in exile, the God who went into exile for us, and the God who brought us home. We should be a context that demands an explanation, and the explanation is Jesus. If you are somebody who's in exile, somebody who does not know or experienced or encountered the good news that Jesus offers through his cross and resurrection, know this. God in Jesus has come to you in exile to bring you home. Are you home? Because the God who has revealed himself in Jesus on the cross is the God who will stop at nothing to be with you, to be with me the God who will stop at nothing to give us life. And thanks be to the God who has revealed himself in Jesus. There's an opportunity to receive prayer this morning. Wow, I'm like over, overcome with emotion. And, I mean, not that that's a surprise to any of you. Uh, but I think part of the reason is, I'm trying to articulate why that might be. Um, I, I think that, 
and I wonder if this is some of what Shannon was feeling when she was reading. It's hard to talk about It's hard to talk about a God who has loved us so much and it not just feel like, um, like, wow, I just want you to know it. Like, I want you to experience it. Anything I say, anything anybody says, doesn't compare to actually the feeling that one has when they experience what God has made possible in Jesus and I don't even know who I'm talking to right now, but some of you might need to know that, that God loves you. Loves you more than you could ever know. And, and that God has come after you in your life where you are to bring you home. And I hope that even in this time of prayer, when people want to pray for you, or not, or with somebody, is that you can just maybe muster up the words to say to somebody, man, I want to come home. I want to know Jesus. I want to experience God's love. I want to experience the shining light that extinguishes shame. That's available to you. So we're going to continue in worship. And again, if you want to receive prayer, there are going to be people on the sides. Thanks for listening to the Grace Long Beach podcast. For more information about our church community, values, and service times, please visit www.gracelb.org.